It's a bit of a scary thing. I wasn't originally supposed to be doing this sermon. I did a swap with, Ni- with Nigel rather naively. Because um, I forgot that I was, away, I was away a fortnight ago. So I kind of go, oh, Nigel, NS, or NP rather. I can swap with him. And now I find myself starting off a series, which is a little bit scary. But, um, yeah. Uh, leading up to this week, I just thought, I've read bits of Hebrews kind of... Uh, throughout my kind of time as being a Christian, but I've never read it as a whole. And so I thought at the beginning of this week while I was doing my preparation work, I would kind of, you know, set some time down and kind of just read it all the way through. And actually, I don't, there's just something powerful. Like when you read a passage, you kind of, you get some of the glimpse of it. But especially with the epistles, uh, if you read it in its entirety, you get the fullness of what's going on. And it just, it really spoke to me in that actually, if you're depending on where you are with God, if you're, you know, feeling a bit drained, feeling a bit tired, not, you know, fully going for God, or just, you know, having doubts in your head, kind of, you know, who is Jesus, what is he doing? Hebrews is just, I don't don't know I hadn't realised it before, but just an amazing book that just kind of, in a fairly succinct 12, 13 chapters, just brings us back to what lies at the core of who Jesus is and what he did. Now, I don't know about you, but we can always use a reminder like that every now and again in our Christian faith, in our walk with God, to be uh, reminded that the truth of who Jesus is, to be reminded that actually we need to listen to Scripture and not to what the world says Jesus is, to be reminded about the fullness of who he is and the fullness and the entirety of what he achieved on the cross. Because I don't know about you, if I'm being honest, I sometimes take that a little bit for granted. I sometimes forget the enormity of what took place, of what was represented, of what took place in Jesus as a person on the cross. And so for me, that's always a good reminder, a good starting place to go back to. But seeing as this is the starter, the first uh, talk on Hebrews, I thought it might be a good idea to have a little bit of background information. I have no idea how many of you here have ever read Hebrews before, how many of you know that much about its context, who it was written by, anything like that. So I kind of had a bit of a theological geeky moment, got excited and looked into it. So I I thought, you know, throughout this week I was trying to work out, you know, how much should I include? Because I could have just done an entire sermon on the background and all that stuff like that. But I think you might have found that a little bit dull and a little bit nerdy, maybe. So, who wrote Hebrews? Well... Like the start of Job this morning, for those of you who are here, nobody's exactly sure. There's one thing that we are sure of, or most people are sure of, is that it isn't Paul. So why do we think it's probably not Paul? Well, starting off in a really basic, simple way, if you look at all of his other letters, he tends to sign his name at the beginning of them. So he doesn't do that with Hebrews. But on a much deeper and a much more... Uh, interesting way, I think, is actually the, the kind of the Greek that's involved in it. Now, some of you, as soon as you mention that G word, might want to fall asleep and kind of go, "Oh my goodness!" But I, like, it, I found that it's really interesting how somebody who actually understands Greek can tell that it's a different person writing the epistles, Paul's epistles, to writing Hebrews. That actually, there's a difference in the vocabulary and the structure of it that points us to giving us a clue that it's somebody else different writing. And the Greek that we find in Hebrews uh, is actually a lot more complicated 
It's a lot more superior to Paul's. So we're not saying that Paul's Greek is a little bit ropey. But in comparison to Hebrews, it is really. Okay, so what, what other things point us to who might be the, the author of Hebrews? Well, actually, in um, Hebrews 13.23, the, the author makes reference to Timothy. So, using a powers of assumption, we kind of, there's a, a general consensus that actually whoever wrote Hebrews was in Paul's circle, knew Timothy, knew Paul, wasn't Paul but knew Paul, and was under, had an understanding of his teaching and his experience. So that's who wrote it, or rather, who didn't write it. But then, who is it to? Well, again, that's a little bit vague, but suggestions have been that it's either to Jerusalem or other places in uh, Palestine. But the most likely location is to the church in Rome, to house churches, to small groups of churches that met in people's houses. Not big congregations. They may have come together in bigger congregations, but more likely a bit like house groups, or maybe a little bit bigger. So, what about the time it was written? Because that will have uh, consequences on, on what we read and, and what we get out of it. The time scale of where does it come along with the, in the time of history and somewhere in the first century, but where somewhere in the first century? Well, like the author, we don't have a specific date. But, in the excitement that I had of reading through commentaries, um, the, in uh, Hebrews 10, 32 to 34, it says, remember, these, remember those early days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes you were publicly expo- exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were tre- so treated. You sympathised with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that your, yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Now, how on earth does that point to when it's been written? That's just, you know, vagueness. It doesn't say directly quote to a specific event. Well, actually, it probably does. Um, it probably, and like anything that I say with anything like this, is always like contextualization and editing and all that kind of thing. So I'm basing this based on scholars who are a little bit cleverer than I am. So I kind of, I read it in more than one place, so I presumed it was probably true. But actually, this, what was talked about in 10, is probably pointing to the persecution that the Christians faced from Nero. So 64 to 68 AD, there was this massive persecution of the Christians where, uh, yeah, it wasn't a good, a good time to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. Nero, the emperor, was a bit of an unpleasant chap, let's just put it like that. He, Christians weren't his favourite people. And a lot of persecution was experienced by that. And it's thought that these uh, three verses are pointing to that. But another indicator within the the entire book of Hebrews about when it might be is there's no mention of the temple. None whatsoever. It's not mentioned to. I mean, and so that might be an indicator because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So that could mean, or probably means, that actually it was at some point after 70 AD. So we've got this kind of bracket of when it's not before, but we don't know when it is, but we don't know exactly when it is. So what other kind of things do we read out of the text that tell us about the the context in which uh, Hebrews is talking into? One of the exciting things about 
epistles is reading between the lines, trying to work out what the author is actually speaking into. Because if you read the book, it's the author gives you indications about the context that he knows the readers are in. It isn't just kind of, oh, I'll just pop out this letter. It's very pointed. It's very specific. It's for a group of people. He knows the struggles that they face. He knows the, the challenges that they need to hear. He knows in general, where they are with God, what encouragement they need, but what challenge they need. And as we read through the epistle of uh, Hebrews, we see that there's probably indications of a pluralistic, as in lots of gods, lots of religions, syncretistic, where little bits of different religions are getting absorbed into people's understanding of who God is. And so I think that's quite exciting, because... I get slightly annoyed when people go, oh, Bible, 2,000 years old at least, has no relevance. But the more and more that I look at history in the context in which passages are written, the more and more I see things that are just so much happening in today's society that we can't just go, 2,000 years, not relevant. Humanity is still humanity. People are still people. Yes, we may have more technology, we may have alleged better understanding of things, but we still, at the core, are human beings who struggle with sin, who struggle staying close to God, who struggle with lots of different things. So this book, like all the other epistles, have so much to say to us, because we too live in a pluralistic, syncretistic society. We live in a society where sometimes, not everybody, be careful to do broad brushstrokes, but more and more, it's a kind of, if it works for you, that's fine. But it's, there's no abs- a, a, um, one of the hallmarks of post-modernity is there are no absolute truths, which is quite an interesting thing to wrestle with because that's an absolute truth, but we don't need to go into that. But as Christians, we believe that there is an absolute truth, there is an absolute way to God, and we find that in Christ. And yet in society that points to something different, a society that says something different to sometimes what Scripture says. So this epistle, as well as speaking into that setting, speaks to us now because of that. And another another exciting... You may notice I use the E word quite a lot, but another exciting thing about epistles is that he, the writer uses so many different uh, quotes from the Old Testament he quotes from 11 different books in the Old Testament. This, again, points to the the Jewish centrality of what's going on in this book. It's probably pointing to, actually, the people that it's written to are probably Hellenistic, so Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, which is a bit of a mouthful. But, actually, their importance of the Old Testament is so vital to them. Because it's so easy to forget that, actually, the first Christians didn't have the New Testament. We take it so for granted, but their scripture was the Old Testament. It was the Hebrew Bible. And that's quite exciting because we can see again and again how God's plan and desire and passion for the world gets worked out throughout history. That they weren't just words said a long time ago, but they were words that were said and and experienced reality. They were lived to the full. They were... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? They were lived out. They were not dead words. They were words that became reality. So bit of an introduction now to actually the passage that we're going to look at tonight now i naively thought oh four verses can't that much that much going on little did i know Um, i think that's one of the for me that's one of the um wonderful things about scripture is you can look at it and you kind of go 
that's not, not much going on. But then when you start to prod and poke and look into it, and it, there's just so much depth going on. There's so much, I don't know, amazing stuff going on. Reminders of things that we need to understand so we get the full depths of who God is, the full depths of who Christ is. And when I was looking through it, it's kind of each verse, in my head anyway, you might find the book, could almost be a sermon in and of itself. So we start off in verse 1 where it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now, you could go, all right, fair enough. That's quite interesting. Uh, Is that it? Well, no, that isn't it. Because actually, because these were Hellenistic Jews, they would have an understanding of of the prophets, of what they did. And it's important for us to, to have that grasp of, who the, prophet, who the prophets were in the Old Testament. Not because it's just nice to, but actually because it gives us a fuller, deeper understanding of who Christ is, of what he's actually done. And the difference between the prophets of the Old Testament and Jesus as part of his role being a prophet, but actually much more than just a prophet. He is a prophet. The prophets of the Old Testament, they only gave half the story. They never gave a message that was complete for all time. Their role was to bring them back to God. Their role was to point to the promises uh, that had been given by Moses, being given by Abraham. They would point back in time to what they should hold dear, point back in time to where they needed to be in the now, encourage them, challenge them where they'd gone astray, encourage them where as a nation they'd whittled God down and absorbed much of what was going on in the society around them. Whereas in Jesus, we see so much more going on that, yes, he draws people back to God, but he gives a complete message. He gives a message that doesn't need any addition to. That If we draw to Jesus' message, there is completeness within it. So, Old Testament prophets, they're... they're I don't know about you, but I can sometimes, like, before, like, maybe two or three years ago, I'd kind of forgotten about the importance of the Old Testament. And as sometimes as Christians, we can do that. We can get focused on the New Testament. But actually, if, in order to be able to understand the New Testament, we need to be able to understand the Old Testament first so that we can fully grasp that final revelation that we find in Christ. So yeah, as well as the prophets to our forefathers, it points to a linear thing. It points to Jesus being part of their ancestry, being part of God's chosen people. So if you go back to to the beginning of Matthew, you see the genealogy and how Christ's foundations go back to the go back through the through the time into the Hebrew people. Right, verse two. It says, "But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son." who he he appointed heir of all things, and through him he made the universe. Wow, that's quite amazing. I think it is anyway. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son. What does that mean? What is he talking about? What is the author talking about? Well, I'm kind of hoping that some of you who are here will remember what what I talked about at the student service in Romans 12 too. Because that, again, was pointing to 
the now, the new age that has come because of Christ, that we live in a, a new phase of God's life, a new phase of history. We live in an age where we can experience life to its full. Yes, there will be pains and struggles and challenges, but because of the the now and not yet that we experience at the cross, there is something different. There is something that has switched within our lives and within the world. And that something that is switched is found in Christ. We have switched from the old law, not there's anything wrong with it, we have switched from a law to a fulfilment of the law that is only found in Jesus. We are seeing a switch from, um, yeah, a switch that actually, as much as the Levitical laws were laid out with regards to sacrifice, which we'll look at in a bit, as much as they were, provi- they, um, they were there for a reason, we only find true fulfilment and true, complete and utter, forever all time sacrifice in Jesus. And it's God's final revelation of who he is. It's God, to know God, is to see Jesus is to know God. Which is it's kind of a bit mind-blowing, I don't know about you. But a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, creator of the world, and yet shrunk down and expressed himself in the sun, actually came down for us. Came down to fully reveal himself to us. So that no longer was he distant in the physical sense, but he came down and people physically saw and touched him. And yet, in places in the Old Testament where uh, people experienced God in such a way, quite often people died because of, I don't know, the amazing, the awe of God to be able to be in the presence of God, yet we have that privilege, which is amazing. Whereas in the Old Testament, there's only one or two people, well, maybe more than that, a few people actually experience that. Yet, in this, in this last days, in the now, we get to experience that. And yes, that doesn't mean that life is funky-dory, that life's amazing and, and all the challenges of life go out the window. But actually, we have the strength and we find the fulfillness, fulfilling life in Christ and in Christ alone. So what about the second part about verse 2? whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Okay, what's that? We have an understanding of God being uh, throughout all time. Jesus was out throughout all time. If we we could go it back to Genesis 1 and 2, and this is why there's lots of sermons within this, but you could go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and look at the creation story and to rethink again, or maybe you already know it, but rethink again about who was really involved, how the Trinity was involved in creation. Now that, to me, that's exciting. Those are the kind of things that are kind of worth getting into so that we have a full understanding of who Jesus is. Because going back to the previous verse, think about being a prophet. None of the prophets were involved in making the universe. So... Jesus is clearly beyond the human ability to be a prophet. Jesus is clearly beyond uh, being able to be squashed down into a little cardboard box of, you know, this is who he is. He was this human being that lived 2,000 plus years ago, and that's as far as it goes. 
from passages like this, like this, who points to Jesus, the Son of God, being so much more powerful and amazing. So, first two verses. Halfway through, or maybe not. First, in ver- the, I'm going to split the next uh, verse into, th- into three bits. The first bit, it says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Wow. Exact representation of his being. He's not just some kind of half-hearted person that points a little bit to God. He is fully God. He is God made man. He is God who decided to lower himself to come to earth to be his representation, to be his full and true and amazing ambassador, to be, give us the ability to see who God really is so that no longer is he, can he be detached in our head with some ethereal concept, but he came to earth to show who God really is. And, ver- and things like this point us again back to, in my head, point us back to passages in the Gospels. In John 14, 6-7, it says, I am, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. For na- from now on, you do know me and you have seen him. Through Jesus, we get the ability, the amazing privilege to know the living God. Through Jesus, we can experience something in our own strength we have no ability to achieve. Now, most of these things, this is kind of taking a bit of a side straight, most of these things... Society in general would dispute. They would challenge. But actually, that's one of the exciting, one of the challenges about faith, about, about Jesus. Actually, it's not about an intellectual argument with yourself or with God. It's about allowing God to reach out to you. Yes, we use our minds. Our minds have been created by God. Our minds are amazing. But actually, it's through Jesus reaching out to us and by faith that we come to believe this. Now, I don't know about you, sometimes I struggle with my faith. Maybe I shouldn't say that as somebody who gets paid to work at this church. But my faith isn't easy because I'm, life as a Christian isn't easy. It isn't all, you know, I've ticked this box. I now fully understand everything and everything all makes sense. Because I'm living in a society, in a real world, which puts pressures on me. And some of these things that I've spoken about, I've struggled with in the past. But actually, and despite some negative experience, my faith has remained strong. My expression of my faith might have gone a little bit not wonderful sometimes. But actually, because of my faith, I know that Jesus is true. And the only reason that I can know Jesus is true is by the Holy Spirit. That's a semi-sidetrack. Back onto what the word itself. It's so in the in the second third of verses three uh, b. I mean verse three. It says sustaining all things by his power. So Jesus wasn't only involved in the creation of the world. He is involved in the sustaining of the world. The ability for people to live there. Yeah, it's just. I don't know. I just get. 
there's just so much of Jesus that I, like, I was, I was thinking about this. I was involved in the, in the CU events week. And uh, some of the questions that came out, I was just sat at the back listening. And it seems like my journey towards becoming a Christian was almost like the reverse of uh, much of the students that were asking questions. My journey to faith was one of... Uh, not somebody, I wasn't brought up in a Christian family. Um, thankfully, mom and sister are Christians now. But um, the, the point where I made a decision, what was not where I had come to all the answers, that I fully grasped what I'm talking about now, that I fully understood who God was. But in the sense of the Holy Spirit, just what I now understand is the Holy Spirit just getting hold of me and convicting me. And that now, on, from that point, onward I've been trying to work out what this looks like and yet lots of the students were coming at it from completely the other direction and so it was it was that was just a, a, I think for me a really good reminder of depending on what your uh, your story is with regards to coming to faith it's actually that everybody's journey will be slightly different and that Actually, sometimes, I think for me, because I've been a Christian like 20 years, it was just a gentle reminder that actually people, so, like, especially within society which we live in, so want to have all the answers and all the boxes ticked before we can say, yes, I will follow Christ. But, yeah. And I don't know about you, but for all, the, for all of us here, we probably, some of us have been Christians a long time, but not all of us have had the answers or do have the answers to everything, but yet we still trusted in Jesus. That was a minor sidetrack. Do apologise for that one. But yeah, so sustaining by his all-powerful words. This, the sustaining of the world just hasn't, doesn't happen by you know, some random stuff. Jesus is involved in the life of everybody every day. Whether we're aware of it or whether we're not aware of it, whether we want to acknowledge it or whether we struggle with that. Jesus wasn't just a revelation at one point in history and scuttled back to heaven and forgets about humanity. Jesus is involved and passionate about the world every day of its life. So, next bit. After he had provided purification for sins... This talks about the whole kind of uh, Leviticus uh, law and Levitical priests and the, the sacrifices that needed to be made in order for the Hebrew people to be made right with God, in order for the Hebrew people to be able to sustain their relationship with God. Now this, I don't know how much you kind of know about Levitical laws, I don't want to be presumptuous, but it wasn't just a once and for all that we find in Jesus. It was a every kind of, you know, kept having to be sustained. It wasn't that the, people, the priests who did it, they themselves needed to make sacrifices so that they, they needed to be cleansed so that they could make the sacrifices. And if it's something that you kind of, you don't understand, then actually if you don't know how to look now, but if you look in Levit- a good place to look is Leviticus 16. But to have a concept, an understanding of what is going on in in Old Testament sacrifices, enables us to see the significance, the impact of Jesus providing purification for our sins. It's a once for all. It's not a, it does a little bit and you need a little bit, add a little bit extra. But if you think about how many sacrifices a, 
Levitical priest might make in his time in the temple. And that still wasn't enough. And yet in Christ, we find one sacrifice on the cross. His blood shed once and for all, we find that we can experience purification from our sins. And that because of that, we can be in relationship with God. So as well as Jesus being a prophet, he was also God's priest. But God's fullest priest, God's ultimate priest, God doesn't need any more priest. And one of the things I've kind of been trying to work out when I've explained this is what, how deep to go with things. But as we go through the book of Hebrews, things like this will be unpacked further. In Hebrews 5 to 9, it kind of goes beyond and unpacks this whole concept of Jesus as sacrifice and sacrificer. But those last three things that we've, uh, the things that we've just looked at in verses 2 and 3, are associated with the wisdom of God. Now, that's a huge area in all of itself, and we could have a whole kind of series on the wisdom of God. But these are, this is a concept, uh, something that is spoken of in the Old Testament. And there are three functions in which we find that Jesus has uh, fulfilled them in this passage. They are the mediator of revelation, the agent and sustainer of creation, and the reconciler of others to God. Jesus, in who he is and who the Son is, has done all of those things. So he's clearly more than just a human being. He's clearly more than a special human being. He's... So what happened? We've seen that he was, he's, um, he's more than a prophet. We've seen that he, he um, carries out um, sacrifice. But what happens when he went up to heaven? What happens after the sacrifice? What happens after um, his ascension? What happens after his defeat of death? Well, the last part of verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Okay, he's got a nice seat, got a good view of heaven. What does that mean? Well, to start with, again, it's pointing back to the Old Testament. It's pointing back to Psalm 110, verse 1. That's the only place, other place, in the whole of the Old and the New Testament where this is made reference to. And the readers of this epistle will, this to us, I'm making assumptions here, but I'm guessing to most of us, sitting at the right hand may not mean much, but to the readers of the epistle, it symbolised supreme authority and highest honour. So to sit at the right hand of majesty, to sit at the right hand of God, supreme authority and honour, so, that's just... Yet again, in this small passage, he's pointing to who Jesus really is, who the Son is, and the significance and the impact of who he is, the depth of his character, the, the enormity of what he has done. Right, we're on to our last verse. hope you're sticking with me. So this last verse, kind of, when I was kind of reading through it, I was kind of going, yeah, does that... Does this really go? Because like next week you're looking at angels. But this last verse says, So he became as superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Okay. Well, what does that mean? 
Now, I don't know that much about angels. My knowledge is limited. I don't know how much you know about angels. But apparently, according to Jewish history, they're associated with Moses and the giving of the law. So, if we look quickly to Deuteronomy 33. I'll read it out loud, you don't have to find. But if you want to, you can. Verse 2. It says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones, angels, from the south, from his mountain slopes. And there's also, it makes reference to the angels being there and part of the law-giving process in Acts 7.53 and Galatians 3.19. So yet again, the author of Hebrews is pointing to Jesus being more than. More than a concept that people understand. More than an uh, ability to understand who Jesus is. So that in these small four verses, the author has pointed towards Jesus being a prophet, but more than, a son, but more than, and more than the angels. I don't know about you, but that's kind of, it's quite amazing, but you kind of, it's one of those things that you can kind of hear, listen, and kind of box ticked. I've listened to the man up the front, he's going to sit down in a minute. But actually, they really have, like, real significance in how we live our faith, how we see Jesus, what we see, and remembering what we see in Jesus. The, the author of Hebrews would not have written these things just because, you know, thought they might be slightly interesting. Whatever is written down in Scripture is important and significance in our lives. And so maybe the, the people, the readers of this epistle, were struggling with these concepts. Was Jesus just a prophet? Was he just a Levitical priest? Was he kind of a little bit like the angels? But actually, the author sees that actually these three things were of importance that we get our heads around and grasp and cling on to. That despite what the world challenges and says about Jesus, that he's just a good teacher, a kind person, or any of these things, that the, the author of Hebrews and I myself believe that there, are, there is so much more than that, that if we sell him short, we sell God short, because God sees Jesus as his son. God sees the significance of what he did. Jesus knows the significance of what he did, but to forget that is to, to deny fully of who God is. And, I, and I'm saying those things not because I've got those things sorted. I say those things because too often I take Jesus for granted. Too often do I know in my head what, I, what he did for me and for each and everybody, but I forget the enormity and the challenge that that brings. Like in one of the songs that we sang before I, I stood up, we were talking about kind of being, giving our God, giving Jesus our all, or something along those lines. I may have completely paraphrased it wrong. But actually, the reason that we might want to sing those words is because Jesus is worth, worth singing those words. Jesus is, is more than just a good person. Jesus is more than a good teacher. Jesus is the Son of God. And the fact that he came down to earth, 
was crucified, raised again, and went back to heaven. It's not just a nice thing. It's a significant thing. It's a challenge for my life. It's a challenge for how I see God. It's a challenge for what I do with my life. And not in a a negative doomsday kind of way, but an exciting way. Because through Jesus, we can experience life to our fullest. And without Jesus, I believe we cannot. I have had struggles in my life where I've kind of doubted who God is, doubted Jesus. But when push comes to shove, I know that Jesus is the Son of God. I know that, although it's sometimes hard, that I'm only living my fullest when I'm in relationship with God, when I lean on my faith, when I grasp hold of the truth of revelation of who God is through Jesus. Now, to me, that's exciting, because as human beings, we want to know who we're, what we're made for, what we're designed for, what life is all about, and yet we can find that in Jesus. So, that's all I've got to say. I hope that my words have just, haven't just been the ranting of a northerner given a microphone. I hope that God has kind of got hold and... Um, <laughs> has got hold of my words, and we're speaking to you in a powerful way, regardless of whether you're, you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, regardless of whether you're struggling with your faith, you're on fire for God. That these four verses ex- uh, point again to some of who Jesus is. Not all, because we're human beings, and if we were fully grasp all of who Jesus is, in every complete way, I think, for me, my brain would probably melt and come out of my ears. But it gives me an insight and a challenge and a refreshment and encouragement to see who Jesus really is. So, one final thing. Now, I'd really encourage you, before next Sunday, if you're going to be here next Sunday, or you're going to be here at any point, during the the series on Hebrews, to set aside an hour, hour and a half, and to read Hebrews through in one go, because you will get so much more out of the passage that's spoken about each week, and you'll hopefully get excited and reminded again of who Jesus is and what, what he has done. So, that's me.